Amen. All right, checking out. It started like just any other typical day in January. The people were busy scurrying around their usual activities in January, of course, trying to keep warm and productive. And the, the adults were off to the fields and other various places of employment. The children went out about their usual daily chores. And I mean, it appeared to everyone it was just going to be another ho-hum day in this Far East country. But that was the change in a matter of seconds. Listen to this. Suddenly an 8.0 earthquake struck with such a force that the ground literally rose up and formed new hills. And then at the same time it sank down abruptly and became new valleys. And then in certain areas streams just burst forth at an instant. The ground broke up. New goalies appeared. Then the houses and the temples and the city walls began to collapse crushing anything and everything in its path. But that was just the beginning. Since the people were surrounded by several high plateaus that were filled with layers of the quake also triggered one of the deadliest landslides of all time. So even if the people managed to escape being crushed by a building, they were doomed by a raging river of mud. And when the screams and the cries had finally subsided, the damage was assessed. The entire region of this country was completely destroyed. A 520-mile wide area was obliterated. And some of the 60% of the population was annihilated. It all happened in just a matter of minutes. Listen, 830,000 people were snuffed out. The year was 1556. The disaster was the Shanzi earthquake. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard of the Shanzi earthquake? Don't raise your hand because you're going to be lying. Okay, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, know. I went from one extreme to the other one. We all got last week, so I had to, you know, be fair and balanced to get one you're never going to get this week. But I think what we can agree upon, uh, even if we've never heard of the Shanzi earthquake, hello, that was a horrible disaster. 830,000 people, bang, just like that, with an earthquake and a mudslide. But again, as you know the theme, with all due respect to those who lost their lives at the Shanzi earthquake, what if I were to tell you I know of a disaster that makes that earthquake look like a game of patty cake? you got to make it rhyme, okay? Uh, and again, what if I were to tell you this, this disaster didn't occur in just one place at one country at one time. It's going on right now today, and it's been leaving a trail of death and destruction for centuries. Folks, once again, we were talking about the satanic war on the Christian, and we've got to get this drilled to our heads. I'm not making up the Bible's replete. We're going to see it again today. We Christians do not battle here and there once in a while. Are you kidding me? Whether you feel it, see it, believe it or not, the moment you got saved, you entered into a spiritual war. We go to war every day. Against what? Something make-believe? No. A real, live, actual demonic host who's out there, whose sole purpose is to mess things up, to destroy your witness and your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. So in order to for you and I to stop getting duped and unnecessarily so is the phrase, getting unnecessarily so duped uh, all over the place in this spiritual warfare, we're going to continue our study, the satanic war on the Christian. We've already seen if you're going to win that war, what's the very first thing you got to do? You got to know who your enemy is. The second thing, uh, what your enemy was like. The third thing, the tactic of your enemy. The fourth thing, the destruction from your enemy. And the last eight times, the fifth thing was the temptation of your enemy. And last time we saw the fifth temptation, he fires at you and I. Dare I say, one of the deadliest ones of all. He tricks us into becoming, listen, a traitorous Christian. And what he will do, the devil will actually trick us into giving up our fight against sin, becoming demoralized. Why? Because when you start looking and sinning and who gives a rip about sin just like the rest of the world, you start to look like the world, not a Christian. You turn into a spiritual Benedict Arnold. You're like a traitor walking around. I didn't say you were saved, but man, your behavior looks just like the world, right? Okay, and what we saw that the enemy does that by one way that we don't understand the positive reasons why, believe it or not, yes, God allows us to be tempted with sin. Now, as we saw repeatedly, hello, he's holy, he's holy, he's holy. He's not the author of sin, but he is so powerful who used what is meant for evil against us 
and use it for good. And what we saw scripturally is sometimes God will allow that to happen to what? To humble us and to strengthen us. I had to use that one again. Don, take a look at you, buddy. Who needs a neck when you're that buff? Okay. But as we saw before, uh, sometimes it's to strengthen us, right? To strengthen our muscles, to humble us. But also we saw it could also be to bless us, right? And the weapons of warfare, one of them we have when we fight this spiritual battle is the weapon of obedience. And believe it or not, though we don't see it or not, every time when we say no to sin, no to temptation, and yes to Jesus, obedience to God, what are we doing? In essence, you're reminding the enemy of his failure. He's the loser. You give him a spiritual uppercut, so to speak. I don't know about you, but that's a blessing uh, to be able to do that. Okay, but believe it or not, folks, that is not the only positive reasons why that God allows uh, some of these hard times. And that's not only the positive thing that he does when he uh, lets us get equipped to deal with the spiritual warfare we're in. The sixth thing that we need to deal with in our spiritual warfare study, if we're going to stop getting beat up and duped all over the place, is we now need to turn to God's protection from Satan and demons. God's protection from Satan and demons. Now, believe it or not, once again, God has not left us hanging high and dry when it comes to dealing with actual demonic issues, actual spiritual warfare. Are you kidding me? He's given us, the scripture is clear. Listen, his full-blown protection, his amazing weaponry, so that we could stand our ground and be victorious, listen, in every single situation. He's not just given us his protection. He's not just given us his weaponry. But when we understand what he's done for us and when we apply it, he says that we can be victorious in all situations every single time. It's called the armor of God, right? Now, I didn't make that promise. God did. So let's begin that journey and let's start tearing this apart. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to take a look. We're not going to go through the whole thing. It's going to take a while. But we're going to take a look at this context of the whole passage today. The armor of God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Right? And let's take a look at God's amazing provision. He doesn't leave us hanging high and dry when it comes to spiritual warfare. Right? But let's take a look there in the armor of God. Right? Verse 10. Here's what he says as we stand. Finally, he says what? Be strong in yourself. Be strong in man-made technique. No that's going to be next week. Okay, you want to say, be strong in the Lord and in what? His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, since that's true, what do you do? Again, put on the full armor of God, so that when, not if, the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Well, how do I do that? Well, he breaks it down for you. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which, which you can extinguish. I love that one word. How many? All the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. And, 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 and with that, then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, Paul says, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me that I will what? Fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, he says it a second time, as I what? 
as I should. You may be seated, okay? Now, I wanted to read the whole context here. Uh, obviously, we're not going to be able to break it down. That's going to take a few weeks, okay? But I want you to get acquainted with where we're going to be heading, okay? And here we see the infamous study in our text. We've already dealt with this text several different times in our spiritual warfare study, but I want to take a look at it again because it's dealing with what we're going to now get into in my new detail, and it's all about the what? The armor of God, right? And we're going to begin to, this process of tearing apart so we don't miss, listen, the blessing as why Paul puts it here at the end of the book of Ephesians. As we're going to see, it is not by chance the timing and the placing of this discussion on the armor of God. Okay, there's a blessing in it. But we're going to see overall in the next few weeks that, that this passage deals with God's mighty power. It wasn't just God's power, it was his what? His mighty power, listen, that is available to every single one of God's children, every Christian, every single day, as we what? Every single day deal with real life, demonic issues, spiritual warfare, temptations, etc. And then we're even going to see God's plea in great detail, would you please put this stuff on? Now, Lord willing, that might be next week, but let me give you a little teaser. The Greek, oh, I can't wait to Greek out. Okay, it actually says there, listen, to be constantly strengthened. Right? Not just be strengthened, but be constantly strengthened day in, day out. Why? Because you constantly need God's strength to deal with the battle you're in. It literally is there in the continuance in the Greek. He also goes on and says, listen, and when you put it on, it's, it's an imperative. He says, put it on now. And when you put it on now, leave it on. It's a once and for all moment. You put this on, right? You seek God's power every single day. Don't you dare stop. And you put this armor on, you put it on right now, and you keep it on. Don't you dare take it off. That's God's plea. That's just in the first couple of verses. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. But we're going to see it also exposes the realities we've been doing for how many weeks now? What I've been saying, the real, live, wicked, evil, demonic forces that are out there, listen, every single day in a hierarchical structure seeking to take us out. Do, do you notice that? We're not even there yet. Man, these demons got it all down. You know, it's just like in a, in a warfare, right? You got certain, you got the generals, and he goes on down the list, right? Private don't tell the general what to do, but there's a constant order. It even talks about that with the demons. The demons are in a hierarchical structure. They work in order. The evil, wicked demons work in order to destroy us. Too bad we couldn't do that. Be in order. Work together as a team and think, hmm, you wonder why, and that's a whole other issue. The enemy wants to destroy unity because we're not going to work effectively. How good is it if the army is completely all messed up and everybody's doing their own thing and what? Same thing in the spiritual, okay? But that's what we're going to see. It also reveals, listen, the piece-by-piece piece supernatural equipment that God gives us to experience his victory that he's already given to us so that we could what? Stand firm in Christ, not if but when the evil day comes, Right? And you've done everything to stand. When the dust settles, when the battle is over, when the temptation's done, when the spiritual warfare is over, you, Christian, if you do what God says, you will be standing. You're not going to be on the battlefield. You're not going to be sitting down there. You're not going to be, not, you're standing. When the battle is over, you're going to be able to stand. Now, does that sound like an important thing to understand? Yeah, and that's what we're going to begin to deal with. Now, now, again, he hasn't left us hanging high and dry. Right? Aren't you glad that when we got saved, God didn't say, hey, you know, before you get to heaven, you know, uh, I just, you're on your own. <laughs> just buck up, buddy. Uh, you're in a war and woo, it's going to be horrible, but at least you get to go to heaven. Now he could and be just, amen? Right? Because we're, praise God, I'm glad we're, by the grace of God, I'm not going to hell. 
But he gives us so much more. And even though he knows it's going to be an absolute, complete, nonstop, 24-7 spiritual warfare, God gives us, I love this, he gives us his armor. Do you understand what that means? This is God's armor. This is not my armor. This is not your armor. This is not armor that you, with all due respect, buy at Walmart and falls apart three days later. Okay. Uh, no, it's God's armor. This is God's armor, the actual armor of God that he gives to us, which means, listen, God never loses. And when he gives us his armor, if you just do what he says, you can't lose. It's his armor. This is an amazing gift, okay? It's his armor. He gives it to us. We cannot lose if... We just do what he says to do with this armor. Yes, understand it, but what do you do with it? So that's all your little segue, the intro, okay? So if we're going to experience this victory that God's already given to us every single time with his armor, I personally want to make sure we get it right. Amen? And we're going to begin the process of tearing this baby apart piece by piece. You guys ready? Hey, praise God, we're going to do it anyway. I appreciate your... Your confidence there. <laughs> the first thing we're going to see about this armor, man, is it is designed for war. We've talked about this repeatedly, but we're going to really get into it now. The armor of God. How many of you guys realize the armor of God is not just so you can look really cool? Hey, look at me. I'm a fashion Christian, right? I've got this helmet on. Don't you wish you had one? <laughs> right? No, it's designed for war. This is not a game. This is not a cakewalk. This armor is designed for war. We're going to see that in two ways today. Okay, and the first way is the context of Scripture. Man, how many times did God got to say we're in a war? Okay, in fact, when you see Paul is writing this section here on the armor of God to the Ephesian church, it just happens to be at the very end of the book of Ephesians. Now, how many guys can figure that out without any help this morning? Okay, you guys are scholars, right? But it's at the end of the book. Now, listen, when you understand the context of Ephesians itself, and then Paul ends it with the armor of God, makes total sense. And it makes total sense. You better get this on because we're in a war, right? So let's begin to break down that process of the book of Ephesians, just an overall. What's going on there? Well, the first three chapters, okay, deals with the spiritual wealth, okay? The next three chapters, four through six, before he gets to the armor of God, is our spiritual walk. The first three talk about the theology. The next three are our ethics. The first three is all of our position in Christ. The position we have in Jesus is safe, it's secure, it's once for all. Now, the next three deals with the practice of the believer. The first three deals with the identity. The next three, the obligation. The first three deals with how God sees us in Christ. It's solid, it's secure. Well, the next three is put it into play. How the world should see Christ in us. The first three is the privilege. The next three is the practice. The first three is Christian doctrine. The next three is the Christian duty. The first three is the revelation. The next three is the responsibility. The first three is the Christian blessings we have in Christ. The next three is the Christian behavior. The, the first three is the heritage in Christ. The next three is our life in Christ. The first three is the work of Christ. The next three is our walk as the Christian, as they should see Christ in us. Christ worked in us the first three. Christ worked through us in the next three. And our heavenly standing in Christ safe and secure nobody can take it praise God we're going to heaven but guess what you don't just sit on that knowledge what do you do you apply it in your earthly walk right so that's the whole context in a nutshell if you will of the book of Ephesians right and what we see is Paul deals first with three chapters in the book of Ephesians with the believers position right? Our position in Christ. Then he deals with the next three chapters, four through six, with the believer's practice, their responsibility to that position that he talked about in Christ. And then he ends on the believer's warfare. Why? 
I think it's common sense when you put it all together in the context. Anytime you truly begin to live for Christ, you don't just know the doctrine, you begin to live that out. You not only know who you are in Christ, you begin to live that out. You not only know how God saved you in the world and is safe and secure, you begin to live that truth out in the world. Anytime you live for Christ, guess what you're headed for? War. Because somebody's out there that doesn't want you to do that. Because our world may never read the Bible, but Christian, how we live the Christian life, we are a walking Bible. We may be the only Bible that they ever read. It's not just knowing the right stuff, our position in Christ, but when you practice that out, somebody doesn't want you to do that. And so do you think it's my chance that Paul deals first with the position, then the practice, and now he's dealing with, you better get that armor on. You better get that armor on. I have a phrase I've said many times. Anytime, this is what I've learned personally. Anytime you want to do something truly significant for Christ, Christian, you're going to pay a significant price. It ain't going to come easy because you're going against the grain of the culture. And Paul knows that. So he tells us at the end, it's not by chance the context of the armor of God. You know it, you live it, you're going to get it. Okay, but God doesn't leave us hanging high and dry. He gives us his armor. You don't have to worry. You don't have to freak out. You don't have to be afraid. Because when the battle comes, not if, you can stand. But you are headed on a collision course when you put this into practice. One guy says this, the committed Christian, and Satan, notice the committed Christian. The one who's serious. The one who's not just knowing this stuff, but living it out. You're on a collision course with Satan. It's inevitable that your life will intersect with the forces of hell as you live for God. And it's constant. The adversary works very hard and very effectively, very powerfully against the committed child of God. And Paul is saying if you are a true Christian as defined in chapters 1 through 3, and then you're living that truth out in chapters 4, 5, and 6, then you could be sure of one thing. You will ultimately run straight into the enemy himself. If you are walking, listen to the context that he covers in Ephesians. If you're walking in humility and unity, not in the vanity of your mind as the Gentiles. If you're putting on the new man and putting off the old man. If you're walking in love, not in lust. If you're walking in light, not in darkness. If you're walking in wisdom, not in foolishness. If you're not drunk with wine, but filled with the spirit. If you're not singing the world songs, but psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And if rather than being proud and individualistic, but you're submitting to one another, and, and then even in the marriage, the, the wives are submitting to their husbands as to the Lord, and the husbands are uh, loving their wives as Christ loved the church, and the children are obeying parents and, and parents are nurturing and rearing their children in the things of God and if employees and employers have the right relationships biblically and they're spiritually making a major impact then believe me you will counter the system and you'll run straight into the enemy it is impossible to live in the manner that Ephesians outlines without having conflict with Satan it is impossible so obviously the thing to do is run hide freak out no. What's the context? Be strong in the mighty power of God every single day. Because it's coming at your way, Christian, if you're putting this into practice and we're supposed to. And then you put it on and you better leave it on. The thing called the armor of God. Okay, you're headed for war. Okay, and again, the scripture is replete with this. I, I, we, we are Christians, it's crazy. I was just talking about something about this yesterday, I think. I said, man, it seems like the average goal and the average Christian today is just somehow you've got, first of all, a, a, a padded cross, and, and then your whole goal in life is just to live for this world, and you act like there's no other world to come, and, and then what you do is you just tiptoe through life with this, trying to avoid as much pain as possible, and then you arrive at death safely. 
That's it? No, we are in a war, right? And God has called us to do great things. He hasn't left us hanging high and dry. He's given us what we need to listen, stand firm in the midst of the war. Okay, and the scripture is replete all over. This is not a cakewalk. We are in a war, and you better get your game face on. Let me just break that down for you real quick. The Bible says that we are soldiers for Christ. First Corinthians 9, 7. Who serves as a what? Soldier at his own expense. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Philippians 2, 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and what? Fellow soldier, he talks about there. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, 3, endure hardship with us like a what? Good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, 4, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. How many of you guys realize that when you sign up for the armed services, you don't say, hey, uh, can I go home now? I'm tired of this. <laughs> I, I just, you know, hey, hey, guys, this has been really awesome. I, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm in much better shape, but I'm done now. I'm going to go back to the, it don't work that way. You try that, what's going to happen? You're going to get it. And if, yeah, bingo. If you even keep going, hey, Christians, we cannot go AWOL. We have no time to go AWOL. Don't you even think? Listen, that's what Paul, I didn't say. He says, listen, you're a soldier now. What are you doing going back into this world? Once you became a Christian, you're a soldier for Christ. You're in Christ's army. You can't get out. And by the way, why would you want to get out? Why would you want to get under, out of the shelter of the almighty God? Read Psalm 91. Man, that's just awesome. But anyway, he goes on. He says, Philemon 1, 2. To Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. We also not just soldiers for Christ. We war for Christ. Romans 7, 23. Paul says, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, etc., etc." 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which what? War against your soul. We also have the weapons of Christ. Praise God. 2 Corinthians 6, 7. In truthful speech and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and left. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world, etc., etc. We also battle for Christ. James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from desires that what? battle within you. We also struggle for Christ. Romans 15, 30. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle. It's not going to be easy by praying to God for me. In fact, go back to our text. We'll get into this later. Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle, the Greek word for that. Let me give you an idea of what's going on here. It is actually the Greek word that means a wrestling contest between two entities, which is decided when the victor is able to hold his opponents down with his hand or foot on the neck. And if he's kept it there for a long enough time, the person died. You were given the death penalty. That's the Greek word that's used for our struggles against what? And then he goes on into the demonic issues. It's a hand-to-hand combat every single day, and he's out there to put his it choke us and kill the life of Christ in us, if he could. That's what we're struggling against, right? Philippians 1.30, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have, Paul says. Hebrews 12.4, in our struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We also fight for Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.26, therefore Paul says, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 1 Timothy 1.8, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, etc., 
set your fall, then that you what? Might fight the good fight. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, 2, fight the good fight of the faith. Hold on uh, to eternal life, etc., etc. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought, Paul says at the end of his life, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, okay? And that's why the Bible, Paul uses the same language in the context that we're in a war. It's the what? It's not the beauty pageant of God. It's not look cool as a Christian outfit for God. It is the armor of God. What's that? It's the same kind of theme. And you break it down, that's exactly the same war verbiage. You need to be strong in the Lord in this battle. You need to put on the armor of the Lord. You need to take your stand against the enemy. Our struggle is against the enemy. You need to stand your ground. You need to stand firm. You need to put on that belt of truth. Wear that breastplate of righteousness. Get your feet fitted with the gospel of peace. All these are pieces of a Roman soldier's equipment. Grab the shield of faith. Put on that helm of salvation. Use the sword of the spirit. Pray to the commander. Be alone. Uh, obey without fear. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking we're in a war. It's not just Ephesians chapter 6. All throughout the scripture, Paul just builds on it. And he breaks down God's provision for it. But we have got to realize, Christian, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be a struggle. There literally is a spiritual force out there who wants to get their hands on your neck and choke you every day. Now that sounds scary and it sounds freaky. But what's the scripture say? You don't have to be afraid. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. Right? I don't have to be afraid. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. Oh, by the way, yes, and aren't you glad God told us this in, in advance? Right? I mean, then we'd be wondering, God, what's going on? How can I know? It's going to be a war. But take heart. I've overcome the world, Jesus said. And in the meantime, be strong in the power of God. Put on this armor right now. Leave it on. Have a great day. Stand firm. That's the context that you see here. We are going to fight. We're going to struggle. We're going to battle. We're going to war every single day, hopefully as a good soldier for Christ, right? And so that's why Paul puts this here in the context. It tells us that we're in a war. The armor of God is designed for war, okay? That's the first thing. The second way we see the armor of God is designed for war is in the catastrophe of the churches. Have you noticed that just because God puts it in the word, in the Bible, we don't always do it? Yeah, that means uh, conviction time. Yeah, that's what we're going to see with the catastrophe of the churches. Now, let me set this up. I was thinking about this. I'm, ooh, 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 let's do some CSI here, okay, on the Bible here. Paul's writing the book of Ephesians, right? He's dealing with the armor of God and the war that we're in. You're going to need this armor because if you start putting this into practice, the first three chapters, right, and you put this into practice, you're headed for war, okay? Listen, but listen, how many times do we play this game? Did you know that the Ephesians church, it was a real live church full of real live Christians just like you and I today? Raise your hand. Now, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're either mannequins or I don't know what's going on, you're freaking me out, right? No, but oftentimes, how many times do we read the scripture of actual people? Uh, I, I don't even like saying stories in the Bible because that gives you an idea of like, uh, at least for me, like it's uh, you know, otherworldly. It's not really, it's, just, it's, like a, it's like a fable made up to teach you a moral lesson. No, it's accounts in the Bible because these are real live people who really went through this. There really was a flood and Noah really had to survive on a real life ark with real life animals. It really happened. It's not just some moral story about the world. And how many times do we even read the letters to the book of of Romans, the Ephesians church, the Colossians church, and it's just like, well, that's just God's truth. No, these were real people, real people just like you and I. They gathered together for church services just like you and I. And Paul is writing to this real group of Christians who met in Ephesus. Now listen, 
He not only writes it to them, here comes your CSI. The Bible tells us how they fared after they got this letter from Paul on the armor of God. Did you know that? It's wild. We can see how did they hear God's truth. He told them they're in a war. He told them, here's your position. Here's the practice. Oh, guess what? You're going to get it when you, but don't be afraid. You just do that. The Bible tells us how they fared. Now, listen to this. Let's put the dates together. Paul wrote, listen, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians approximately 60 to 62 AD, okay? The apostle John wrote the book of Revelation approximately 95, 96 AD. So you're dealing with basically a 30-year time frame. So why am I bringing up uh, the book of Revelation? Because the book of Revelation tells us the status of the Ephesians church about 30 years after Paul tells them about the armor. And it ain't good. It's not good at all. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you deal with the seven churches. Five of the seven utterly failed. Now, Again, Paul, typically, we see this in Colossians. I don't have time to quote it. But in Colossians, you see a pattern of Paul. He would write a letter to a church, but then sometimes he would say, oh, and take this letter and then give it to that church so they can read it. Oh, and the letter I wrote to that church, you get that from them and you read it. So he's circulating his letters. So I don't think necessarily that just the book of Ephesians that mentions the armor of God just made it to just the Ephesians church. I think it went around to the other churches, right? I think it's common sense in the scripture. But when you take a look at the churches How did they fare 30 years later? Paul warned them 30 years earlier. Hey, it's a battle. Hey, you better take this serious. Hey, you better get this armor on because somebody's there to take you out. Five of them were taken out, including Ephesus. This blows me away because Ephesus, again, is the one to whom the book of Ephesians was written to that first heard about the armor of God. And so now let's fast forward 30 years and what happened to this church? How could this happen? This was Ephesus. Well, let's take a look at their fatal flaw, right? And we see this in Revelation chapter two, verse two through four. Jesus speaking here to the Ephesians church. Again, real people just like you and I. 30 years after the talk about the armor of God. He says, hey, listen, I know your deeds, church, in Ephesus there. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and you found them false. Man, you have persevered. You've endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary. Now, now, right now, does this sound like Ephesus is, whoa, what an awesome church. Had a fatal flaw. Jesus sees everything. Yet I hold this against you, Ephesus. You have forsaken your first love, the first downfall the first crack that allowed the enemy to get in even though they had the armor of god now each one of these seven churches in revelation 2 and 3 could be a major mega sermon itself i don't have time for that i don't have time to go into even the two positive ones okay and what they did right i only have time to focus on the five that blew it but it's not just they blew it as we're going to see it you blow it on this first step it just spills downhill but what we see here with Ephesus is simply the church that, what, what did Jesus say? You had a lot of God, good going for you, but what was your major, major fatal flaw? You lost your first love. Now, as we saw before in our study in the character of God dealing with this aspect, we saw in the Greek there, it wasn't just something willy-nilly. It was a deliberate act is what the Greek says. They didn't just wake up one day and go, oh, what happened? Where did it go? No, the Greek literally says you've forsaken. You woke up one day and says, no, I'm not going to love Jesus like I used to. 
It was a deliberate choice, the Greek says. So this is Ephesus. They stopped loving Jesus like they used to when they first got saved. And oh, how we love to gloss that one over. This is the first deadly step. You see somebody that starts out so on fire for Christ, so in love for Christ. They're out there witnessing for Christ. You got you to smack their hand to stop getting to read the Bible. It's time to get to I got to read the Word again. They're praying. up. It's just, you know, when you first got saved. Not anymore. One guy said, man, there's so much dust on American Bibles today. Two things. You could write the word damnation on them, on the cover. Number two, if everybody blew the dust off their Bibles at the same time, we'd have the biggest dust storm in history. <laughs> what happened? And we laugh and we placate and says, well, you know, it just happens to everybody. No! Don't do that. As we're going to see, that was Ephesus' downfall. Oh, they knew all the right stuff. Nobody could beat these guys at a doctrinal test. Man, they knew it. They knew doctrine. In fact, they had great leadership who knew doctrine. This was an orthodox church. They would not put up with false teachers, not for a second. They, no false teaching. They persevered. They kept at it. But one day, no. No, I'm just not going to do it. And they started going through the motions. They started punching in their religious time clock it was just dry still orthodoxy they look good on the outside they said the right stuff they knew the right stuff they did christian stuff as well they says no i'm just not gonna love them like i used to one guy he says this he said this is the church where love died the love for god died orthodoxy and activity without love this is dangerous because you cannot be effective for God, apart from loving the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You know, like when you first got saved. Ephesus turned their hot hearts for Christ, for cold orthodoxy. They were simply becoming those who carried on a very biblical ministry, but without passion. And I warn you, if you ever get to that place individually as a Christian or as a church, the place where what you do is just an orthodox performance without love, that is step one, Satan now has a foothold. When you come to the place where the honeymoon ends and you don't do what you do out of an overwhelming love for Christ, you're in trouble. You're in real trouble. If you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ as an orthodox performance rather than a passionate love for him, you've missed it. You've missed it altogether. So look at your own life. Is the enthusiasm for Christ there or is the thrill gone? Is it a fair description of your Christian life to say, well, I just kind of do it. I, yeah, I just don't have the same love. I, yeah. Listen, if you love anything in this world more than you love Jesus Christ, you've lost your first love. If you love yourself, your family, your leisure, your money, your success, anything, you've lost it and you're in real trouble. You need to get back to how it used to be. You need to get back on your knees. You need to get back to the Bible. You need to get back to witnessing, back to fellowship, get back to prayer, get back to sharing and praising the Lord. Why? Because unless you do, don't kid yourself, the same thing will happen to you that happened to Ephesus. Listen, the church in Ephesus died. We know this historically. They went out of existence. A great evangelical, orthodox, historic, monumental church went out of existence. Why? Hey, that's God. Tell them we love them. <laughs> We're not losing our first love. It's because they lost their first love. And they rationalized it like it was no big deal, but that was step one of their downfall. Wow. And this is the one. This is the church. This is the passage on the armor of God. The church is the Christian, just like you and I today. To whom this was first addressed? 
Let's play this little game. It's the Lord's Day and we're all still alive. Since I've been here, this is the first time that I've had the privilege to officially tear apart Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We're beginning that journey today. We're going to go down deep in the armor of God. And I'm sitting here, even when I'm doing my notes, I'm going, how many of us, 30 years from now, if we're still alive, will still be standing? Where are you at? And if you're right now in your walk with Jesus Christ and you were just going through the motions, happened to Ephesus, you still going to be standing? That's a dangerous place to be. And so Paul says, listen, take this serious. Here's your position in Christ. Praise God, you know doctrine. You got to live it out though. But when you live it out, it's going to be a war. But don't freak out. Just do what God says. Seek his power every single day. Put the armor on. Leave it on. And don't ever take it off. And don't give the enemy a little crack. Don't lose your first love. Or don't kid yourself. You will not survive the war. That's the first one. The second church that failed to heed Paul's advice about you better get this armor on. You better keep it on. And you better put it on right now. Is Pergamum. Okay, And what we're going to see again with these churches, once you make this first fatal step, man, you just open the floodgates. It all spills downhill. And this is what you see with the next church, Pergamum. Right? Jesus calls them out. They had some good stuff, but man, they also had some problems. Revelation 2, 13 through 15, I know where you live. Jesus said to this church, group of Christians just like you and I, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Wow. Nevertheless, I got some things against you. He seized it all, man. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So here we see, in essence, the church of Pergamum, it all spills downhill. What happens when you lose your first love for Jesus? You go to apparently stage two. It's not by chance they are in the order that they're in. And, and, and you lose your first love for Christ. Well, you got to love something. And so what do you do? Your love gets transferred to something else, as it was with Pergamum. Their love began to go over the world. Ephesus was the church that lost their first love. Pergamum was the church that compromised with the world. Pergamum let the world come into the church. Pergamum began to intermarry, intermingle with the world. And that's what we see there with the teaching of Balaam, the Old Testament passage there. The context is he got the Israelites to intermarry with the pagans. That was the sin there. And follow their practices. The pagan practices of the world. And the teachings of the Nicolaitans was just wholesale immorality. And so this church went literally ape for the world because you got to love something. And if you don't love Jesus, you're going to love something. And that's what they did. They loved this world to the point where they let the world come into the church. Fatal step two. One guy says the church of Pergamon, they began to court the world. They began to indulge themselves in worldly things. They let the world in. They violated 2 Corinthians 6 that says, What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? They were to come out from among them and be ye separate and touch no unclean thing. But no, they let the world come in. They were doing what the world wanted them to do. Pay attention. We've talked about this to Unbloom the, the Church Growth Movement. What's the church growth movement all about? You want to grow your church? What do you got to do? You got to look like the world. You got to act like the world. You got to resemble the world. You got to speak like the world. You cater everything that the world likes so the world will somehow like you and come here. That's not what the scripture says to do. 
This is where they were and they went belly up. This is the church growth movement I'm reading basically. They were doing what the world wanted them to do. They were aping the world. This is American Christianity today. We too have become very smug and content, almost subcultural. Rather than, listen, confronting the world, we have conformed to the world. We're just kind of waltzing along with this system trying to accommodate. And we believe we can win them if we become what they are. It's amazing how the American church today is going all out, whole hog, to ape the world. We do it in so many different ways. If the world's view of the family changes, the church accommodates it. If the world's view of the woman changes, the church accommodates it. If the world's view of the homosexual changes, the church accommodates it. And we get on the bandwagon. We do everything the world does. We want to identify it, and it's shocking. The church becomes materialistic because the world is materialistic. The church becomes preoccupied with entertainment because the world is preoccupied with entertainment. And the message we say is the same. We say we preach Christ, yet we compromise. Listen, and it begins to eat away like termites at a foundation. How does Satan attack a church? First, it's very subtle. You think you're so secure because you know doctrine. You're so smart, Christian, nobody could whoop you at a doctrinal test. You won't put, you'll call out false teachers, rightly so, man. You won't put up with none of that baloney. You know all the right stuff, but you don't love Jesus no more. You make that first fatal step, then suddenly you begin to compromise with the world because the easiest thing to lead you into compromise is a lack of love for God. And that's what happened to this church. It spills downhill. Pergamum also, like Ephesus, did not survive the war. They're gone. Went out of existence. They didn't survive. And don't kid yourself if we don't think it could not happen to us. If any of those things mentioned there is true of you today, you better turn around today. You better listen to what Paul says. You better seek the power of God every single day. Don't you dare quit. Put the armor on and start living for Christ. Because you're in a war. And that's why God's giving you the armor. So the enemy doesn't take you out. You don't have to be afraid but do what he says to do. And if you take it lightly, it's going to get even worse. The, the third church that failed is Thyatira, right? Let's see what happened to these guys. It's not good. Again, it gets worse as you go. You make that first fatal step, right? They went out of existence too. Revelation 2, 19 through 20. I know your deeds, Jesus said. I know he knows everything, right? I know your love and faith and your service and your perseverance. And in fact, I even know that you're doing more than you did at first. Wow, okay, whoo, okay, they're standing strong. He says, nevertheless, I got this against you. You what? You tolerate. Isn't that the buzz phrase for today? Tolerate. We got to tolerate. You got to learn to tolerate. A true Christian tolerates. Excuse me? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and by eating of food sacrificed to idols. That is Thyatira, okay? It's an even further progression of what happens to a church, or dare I say, even a Christian individually, when you make that first fatal step, when you stop loving Jesus, and you knew you were making that decision. You not only go to stage two and begin to compromise with the world, you not only let the world into your church, you let the world into your home, you let the world into your walk with Christ, you begin to go to stage three, you actually listen, you tolerate sin. What does that imply? What does that mean? This church was, listen, knew that they were wrong. There was a woman teacher. She called herself a prophetess. They knew she was wrong. They knew it was wrong. They knew that people were being led astray by this woman in the church. But listen, they not just knew it. They allowed it to continue. They tolerated it. 
You get it? It wasn't like, oh, how did this happen? I, last time I go on vacation, I came, everything was fine when I left. And it, they knew it. They knew what was going on. They refused to do anything about it. They to, this is the tolerating church. And once you start tolerating sin in a church, you're going down. One guy puts it this way. He says, listen, if the church in Pergamum was married to the world, Thyatira is celebrating their anniversaries. This is the church that tolerates sin. Ephesus lost their first love. Pergamum compromised with the world. Thyatira was tolerant of sin. And the floodgate was open. They allowed the sin to come in and have its heyday. Why? Because they refused to do anything about it. There were people there committing in the church fornication. Didn't do nothing about it. He says it sounds like the Corinthian church, doesn't it? Yeah. He says, oh, by the way, they went out of existence too. But here came this woman and she was seducing them, involving them in the idol worship of the day and, and sexual activity. And so here we had these people having a great time. They were getting involved in the filth and the rot of this world. They were committing adultery. Why? Because a believer is married to Christ and fooling around with idols and sexual immorality is a form of adultery. This church tolerated that. And then he gives an example. He says, listen, an elder told me about a church that he was in in the past. Listen, a church. That two elders and their wives had exchanged their wives in the church. True story. But listen. He said the church knew it. And the church thought they shouldn't do anything about it because it might upset the congregation. That is Thyatira. A church that tolerates sin. Beloved, there are so many churches that do this. They, they just don't want to deal with sin. They, they don't want to confront anybody. And they say, well, you mean you discipline your church? Yeah, because the Bible says so. But see, we, we don't want to do that because then they might get upset or they might leave. That's Thyatira. That's tolerating sin. And they went out of existence. When a church refuses to confront people in love about sin, why? Because we are on a witch hunt. No, we're not. As God brings it up, what do you do? You elevate God's standard and you deal with it. Scripture says God disciplines those whom he hates. No, those whom he loves. And when you see a brother or sister in Christ that is harming the congregation, harming themselves with sinful behavior, sinful teaching, what do you do? You love them enough to speak up and say, turn from that. That will destroy your walk with Christ. That will bring destruction upon our church. No, I love you too much. I, I have to say something. And if they don't respond, what do you do? You do what the scripture says to do. You discipline them in love. Always for the purpose of restoration. But that will not be tolerated. When a church refuses to speak up about sin, they know what's going on, but you refuse to do, you're almost to the next church. You're almost dead. And that's what we see with the next one, Sardis. Man, you don't, you, it's going downhill. Going downhill, Sardis. Let's take a look at this. This is basically about as short or sweet you can get. Because by this time, if you're at that point where you're just full-blown tolerating sin, you don't care, and you refuse, you know it's, you, you're almost dead. And it's just short and straight to, uh, sweet to the point from the Lord. Revelation 3, 1, what's he say? I know your deeds. Oh, you got this reputation of being alive. Oh, yeah, you're having a place. You think you're cool. You think you're awesome. Look at your programs. Look at all this. You're dead. You're dead. I, Jesus is speaking here. Church, real tr Christians, real people, real congregation, just like you and I today, you're dead. 
short, straight to the point from the Lord. What happens when you start uh, stop loving Jesus? You start compromising with the world. You, you know sin's going on. You refuse to speak about it. You don't do anything about it. You tolerate it. You end up dead like this church. Oh, it'll happen. One guy, he says this. He says, you start off with a loss of love, then pretty soon you don't love the Lord anymore, and, and then you're willing to compromise, and you compromise a little bit, and pretty soon your compromise becomes a full-blown tolerance of sin. Sin floods into your walk with Christ. Sin floods into your church, and you go right from fire tire into Sardis. You become a dead church. Why? Because when sin completely takes over a church, the spiritual life is choked out, and what you have left is a dead church. You're like Samson. Oh, you're moving around all right. You just don't have any strength. The life is gone. And so a church that tolerates sin becomes a degenerate church, a dead corpse. Listen, a church that's like a corpse. This is all Sardis was. It's just form. Listen to this. He said, it's like the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Corpses man the ship. Dead men pull the oars, and dead men steer the vessel. All the thing was functioning, it's just everybody was dead. And this is what happens when a church, all they've got left, they just got a bunch of activities, they got their programs. Oh, you got your classes for this group and that group and all these kids and the adults and all that stuff. Everybody's busy, the fleets are rolling, but people are coming, but there's no life there. God's not there. Listen, Ichabod is written on the doors. The glory has departed. Sardis went out of existence because Sardis became a dead church. And we better not kid ourselves if we think that couldn't happen to us. I'll say it again. How many times do we read the scripture and we just kind of read it with the, oh, that's otherworldly. That's just on, yeah, it's God's word. But no, real Christians, real people, real churches just like us today. And God tells us don't do the same mistake. You better take it serious unlike they did. What's, what's the scripture say? God writes these things down for us for what? Our admonition for our warning. We learn not only what to do what is right, we learn you better not do the wrong and here's why. He tells us in advance, if this is your church, if this is your walk with Christ, don't kid yourself. It's going to happen to you. So do what Paul says. You better seek daily God's power, his strength every single day, every single day. You better get that armor on. You better leave it on and stand firm. That's not, you're going downhill. And it leads to the fifth one, the fifth and final one, the worst one of all is Laodicea. Man, man, all just because you didn't do, God made provision, but you wouldn't do it. And you end up like this. Right? Here's what he says, Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 16. I know your deeds, Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. What? Good for nothing. I wish you were one or the other. Something. Just give me something, will you? Good for nothing. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In essence, this church got so bad. In essence, God's word's not mine. They make God want to puke. Ugh! You sit there and you say with your mouth, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm not. I see your heart, and you've degenerated all the way down. You, 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 you gave up your love for me. You didn't just lose it. Then you started compromising with this world. You knew that sin was there. You refused to do anything about it. And all of this, is you're completely dead. You're just going through the motions. It's just an empty shell. You say that with your mouth. You make my mouth want to vomit. That's some strong words. This is the church that made God 
want to puke. You know why? I had an internship, the pastor, I never got this until years later. He said, my greatest fear, I remember him saying this all the time, my greatest fear is that we would get to the point where we are playing church instead of being the church. This is Laodicea. And one guy said this, he said, Laodicea is the apostate church. This church is no church at all, basically. They were neither cold nor hot. Listen, listen to their attitudes. They weren't interested. Yeah, so what? They weren't even concerned. They were indifferent to the gospel. Yeah, let somebody else do it. No pretense at all. They were just unmoved, uninterested. This is plain Christianity. It's like liberalism today. Under the guise of Christianity, you're not even real Christians. You deny the Bible. You deny the deity of Christ. You deny all the great tenets of the Christian faith. And yet you say you're a Christian church. You're phony. And a phony church is no church at all. Oh, you started out good. Remember those days when you first got saved? You started out like Ephesus, but then the descent comes, and pretty soon you got nothing left. He said, listen, I've been in auditoriums around this country that seat 4,000 people and used to seat 4,000 people, but now on Sunday mornings there's 150 liberals huddled in the, huddled in the front. This happens to thousands and thousands of churches around the world. They go out of existence. They go apostate just like Laodicea. Why? Because of that first fatal mistake that they thought was no big deal. You stopped loving Jesus. Wow. No wonder the Bible says we're in a war. You're going to fight, man. You're going to struggle. No wonder Paul says, listen. Ephesus, take this serious. Not all of our battles are against flesh and blood. They're coming after you. But be strong in the Lord every single day. Take this serious. Put on the armor of God, and you will be able to stand. None of these churches, listen, stood. Not one. Sardis is gone too. This is what's going to happen. I could say with full confidence because it's all scripture. If Christian or Christian church, you wake up one day and you make that deliberate choice, mm -mm. I'm just not going to be as passionate like I used to. I'm not going to read my Bible like I used to. I'm not going to witness like I used to. I'm not going to pray. I mean, look at everybody else. They're not doing it. You begin to rationalize. That's the first fatal step. And then you go, how far can you push that? And maybe you're starting to run into another category. Did you know when the Bible talks about apostates, apostates are people who profess Christ, but they didn't belong to Christ. And so maybe the reason why you didn't stand in the end is because you never really belonged to him. Maybe the reason why you never put on that armor of God and you took it no serious, and you were just religious, but no relationship, is because you never had a relationship. One guy puts it this way. He says, listen, I was in Scotland. This is from John MacArthur. He said, I was in Scotland preaching, and a man came up to me and introduced his name. He says, my name is Reverend Cecil Mills, and I'm a minister, and I've been here for many years. And he comes up to John MacArthur. He says, hey, is your father named Jack, Jack MacArthur? And John said, yeah. He said, your father came to Ireland 30 years ago, and he came with two other men, and they held a revival here in Ireland and Belfast and around Ireland. He said, at that meeting, I went to hear your father, and I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I dedicated my life to ministry that day. And he said, I'm a pastor now because of the Lord using your father. And I just wondered if that was your father, and, and, and would you please do a favor for me when you see him next? Would you tell him that? He said, yeah, I will. He said, well, I got another question. He says, where's your father now? And John said, oh, he's, he's still pastoring, ministering, teaching the word like he always has. 
And she said, well, is he still faithful to the word? And John said, yeah, he's still faithful to the word. Still carrying on, still standing. And the guy says, oh, okay, well, what about the other two guys? What happened to that, that, uh, the other guy? One, one guy's name is Chuck. What happened to Chuck? And John said, oh, he became an apostate. He denied the faith. He forsook the truth. He denied the word of God. And he goes, oh, that's so sad. He has so much potential. And, but what about the, the second guy? And John says, oh, he died, an alcoholic. The guy goes, no. And he says, listen, I don't relish telling you that, but I want you to know something. Three men, three men professing to know Christ, listen, three men went to Ireland 30 years ago and they did it all. And lots of people have done it all. But when the battle is over, when the dust clears, they're not all standing. And he said, I got this, a letter this week from this lady. He, she says, hey, uh, Pastor MacArthur, I've been in your church for several years, and I've been very involved in your church, but I just want to let you know I'm leaving. Why? Because I decided to marry a non-Christian. She's not standing anymore. Listen, there's lots of people who did it all. They pastored a church. They taught a class. They had a Bible study. They led people to Christ. But when the battle got hot, when the smoke cleared, they were down. Why? Because they didn't have the armor on. And they didn't take it serious. i got to wrap this up, but I've seen this happen in already in my time and being a pastor over 20-some years now. I'll just real quickly share this with you. One of my first friends in the Lord, listen, one of my first friends in the Lord, when I first got saved, he took me under his wing. He began to disciple me. He, he, he's the one that helped me get the first internship I got involved in when I started going to Bible college, right after getting saved. He's gone. He's denied the Protestant faith now. And he decided to become a Catholic and is defending Roman Catholicism. Breaks my heart. I have another person, I kid you not. As you know, my testimony, one of the few people who used to witness to me when I was involved in the occult and New Age, that same person is now getting involved in New Age. Past interns that I have invested in, past congregants that I have pastored over the years, they're no longer following Christ. They're in this world. They're indifferent. They're dead. Why? Because they lost their salvation? Mm -mm. You can't. The war showed their true colors. They were apostate. Because the Bible says you can't lose your salvation. If they leave, they were never saved in the first place. Even though they pastored a church, even though they went to Bible college, even though they were behind the pulpit, even though they taught a Sunday school class, they didn't stand, they didn't survive because they were apostate. First John 2, 9, they went out from us because they didn't really what? Belong to us. Well, how do you know? What's the acid test? You're in a war every single day. Well, guess what? Not everybody's left standing. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. They didn't take it serious. When the heat was on, they were gone. When push came to shove, you live Christ's way or you compromise with the world. They chose the world. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it in the first place. And then I really wonder if this is why the American church as we close is so powerless and ineffective today. Could it be because we're in various stages of decay like the five churches? Some worse than others, but they're all in this process of decay. And now we've accepted, listen, a plastic Christianity as real Christianity when it's not. How do you know? It's when people start saying stuff like this. Tell me the church isn't flooded with these kind of people. Let's take a look at this guy. Hey, 
I'm Ryan. I'm a Christian, and this is my story. Growing up, I never missed going to church. And when I was 12, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I, I was even baptized. It, it undoubtedly was a very important decision. It even affected how I lived in high school. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I had fun on the weekends. I had a girlfriend, a couple, but I was a normal high school kid. College was one big blur, but I did make it to church out of obedience. And after school, I married a great girl, and she's been a great influence on me. Life's been good. I have a house, three kids. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, sure, I worry about my future. I mean, my marriage, it could be better. And I need to spend more time with my kids, but, but things will be all right. I have my faith. You may not hear me talk about it a lot, but that's, it's just because it's personal. But don't worry for me. My Jesus is real. How many people professing Christ that you know of have those kind of conversations? Only God knows the heart. But my thing is, why would you go that far and flirt with it that much? Is that the goal in the Christian life? See how close I can get to the world and somehow come out still being a Christian? Or is it I love him and I'm not going to lose my first love? And you're not going to get that first crack in my walk with Christ. I'm thankful, I'm grateful that he has saved me from eternal damnation and hell. And I know I deserve to go there. And every single day I had the privilege of growing up strong in him. Becoming a warrior for him. I'm clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm trying to see how close I can get to him and to his cross. And away from the stinking world. And while I'm here, he's going to use me, prayerfully so, to make a difference in this world. As I hold on, I reach out to the world, but I hold on to the cross. And if you let your hand go off the cross, you better be careful. Maybe it's a sign, just like Ephesus. I, I know good doctrine. I know what Orthodox Christianity is. I know right from wrong. My dad's a deacon in the church. My grandma took me to church. Doesn't mean you never got saved. If you don't love Jesus, something's wrong. And if you don't turn around right now, if you don't take this serious, if you don't do what Paul says, get the armor on now and leave it on. And every single day, seek the power of God. Because one day your war is going to be over. But the question is, will you be standing? Because when you got that armor on, what's he say? And after having done everything, I'm still standing for Christ. What did Paul say? I fought that good fight. I kept the faith. I finished the race. Why? I'll guarantee you Paul had his armor on. And he says, you better do the same thing, church, Christian. And don't kid yourself. Five out of seven don't make it. That's how serious it is. Amen? 
Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So, once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there, uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, You shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven, that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that, really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's His holy standard. One more. The Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just five out of ten of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You will be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven in that state. You're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this. Number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. 
For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail, but believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.